I think it was I think it was a wheat field that they'd st- stubble wheat field that she'd she just burst off the glove. I wasn't even, I wasn't even 100% sure what she was going for. It m- must have been a good 30, 40 meters across the field. And as as I saw him getting closer, a, a rook got up off the ground. So also four times her size. And as it got off the ground, she hit it. She hit it hard, and she she hung onto it like you like you won't believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told Podcast. And for the next installment of this series that is brought to you by the Cape Falconry Club located in and around the Western Cape in South Africa. Many thanks to them for their invite to help make this series possible, and I really hope that you all have been enjoying it so far. I also need to mention the Falconry Heritage Trust for their part in helping to make this series happen as well. Without their sponsorship and uh, other grant that they awarded to be able to help pay for the airfare to get to this meet and to get to this area, this wouldn't have been possible either. So many thanks to them. If you want to find out more about them and and help support their cause, then just head to www.falconryheritage.org. And also a big thank you to our new continued sponsor in Bobby Yaga Crafts from Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check out any of his equipment yet, I highly recommend you do so. As you've heard me brag about many times before, it's the highest quality handmade equipment that you can get. At least part of the highest quality anyway, and there's no way you can really go wrong with it. The The anklets are amazing, and, and so are his new uh, hybrid jesses that he just started making as well. So, like I said, if you haven't had a chance to check them out yet, just head to uh, Baba Yaga Goshawk on Instagram. And the other information to get in touch with him is also on our website at falconretold.com. And the next guest in our series is another falconer who also happens to be a veterinarian. He uh, not only is from South Africa, but has also spent a lot of time in the UK as well, doing um, different parts of his practice. And we'll talk more about that during the conversation. You'll hear plenty about that, too, with some of his prior experiences. Um, Getting to know Kyle was was a pleasure, and along with the rest of these Falconers that I got a chance to talk to and meet while I was there. And um, yeah, he also was uh, kind enough to introduce me to a slow gin for the for the first time too. It was uh, really good stuff. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, yeah, we'll just go ahead and turn things over to this conversation with Kyle. Uh, he had a lot of really neat insights from a veterinary standpoint as well. And um, I hope that you uh, enjoy hearing about his experiences, not only from uh, being in South Africa, but also from being in the UK, too. It made things um, a little a little interesting from getting multiple standpoints from having practiced falconry in a couple different countries. So without uh, saying anything further, we'll go ahead and turn things over to this conversation with uh, Dr. Kyle Perrin. Here we go. What are the name of these birds again? Which ones? The one shouting? Yeah, the hardy dolls. How how is it pronounced again? Hardy doll. Hardy doll. Yeah. It's a type of ibis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they're really annoying. Yeah. They're (laughs) everywhere and they make a racket the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. The listeners, I think. (laughs) And none of the birds want to hunt them. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. The listeners, I think, of this series are going to get some. (laughs) 
<laughs> it just keeps going. Well, at least you can say it's wildlife. It's yeah, wildlife. yeah. No, it, it's funny. They're going to get a lot of interesting sounds during this series, I think. But, uh, but yeah, man. No, um, it's uh, like I said. One of the things I like the most about doing these different series, especially the international ones, is um, you know getting to meet new people and also getting to find out how things are done in different areas and. Um, Remind me again, I don't know if you told me or not this morning already, but uh, I mean, where are you from exactly? So I grew up in Cape Town, um, went to my whole school career in Cape Town and um, yeah, uh, but only started Falconry much later. Um, yeah, born and, well, born and bred in South Africa um, and all my schooling in, in the Western Cape. And um, refresh my memory, you're a, you're a vet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's how I got into falconry through through veterinary science. Really? Okay. Well, how? Um. So, I mean, what's the schooling like for that compared to you know other other countries here? Is it pretty comparable or? Uh yeah, I think it's pretty much similar to to training in other in other countries, uh, especially Western countries. So developed countries like the United Kingdom, Europe, America. There's it's quite formalized and there's good standards um and we've got a very it's a bias towards to to small animals like the dogs and cats is that they focus a lot on that and uh, where some of the other countries in africa their, their training is far more uh, agricultural um so livestock orientated rather than the the small animal side of it gotcha so um as far as like other parts of of africa and stuff especially to I mean, are they also doing like specialty tracks or anything for, you know, some of the, you know, the bigger animals and some of the more what we we, we would consider exotics, you know, like the lions, the yeah. elephants and things like that, too? Or? Yeah. So in the past 20 years, there has been a lot more uh, movement to to training the vets properly to to do um, wildlife medicine. Um, and giving them specific training for what you would need to be doing with that, and and over time those that that branch of veterinary sciences has grown as the as the the game industry has grown in South Africa, then the the the, the veterinary component of that has grown with it. And um, I mean, how often are you involved in any of that aspect of things? Very often, being as you live kind of down here, away from it a little yeah, bit. Or? I'm I'm not involved in 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 big game at all. Uh, being working in the in working living in the city in Cape Town, then I mainly work with um, uh, cats and dogs, the the companion animals. Uh, I do sometimes do. I have got a bit of training in in exotic animals, meaning like birds and um, reptiles and that kind of thing. So I'll see I'll see work with those patients um, occasionally, but mainly pet owned birds, and then obviously a couple of raptors every now and again. Um, but big game, I'm um, I'm not involved. Uh, that's a lot of that is further up country, and and anyone that's dealing with game in the in the Western Cape, usually they're using a a, a vet that's doing a lot of farm work. And, Down here, you know, like I, said, I I would imagine in a bigger area like this, it would be more kind of pet, you know, focused. I mean, I would imagine that would yeah. be more, more where of your business comes from. Yeah, right? if you if you're working in a bit in a in a built-up city, in a residential area, that's where that's where most of your client base is going to come from, and and unfortunately, um, the paying clients are going to be the ones that there's an emotional attachment to the pets, and um, to be able to to 
to operate as a business, you have to have clients that are willing to um, willing to pay for your services. And there's a lot of smaller wildlife in the Western Cape um, that that occasionally comes in, um, but you've you, you've got to be very careful how you do it um, and what you do uh, because if, even even that in the Western Cape, um, the the Cape Cape Nature wants to be very they've put down very strict rules of what you can do and can't do and so you want to you don't want to have wildlife in your hospital um, and and not be doing it 100% by the book with Cape Nature and that and um, so I think most most clinics try and avoid doing too much with um, with wildlife and we've got good systems in place like the SPCA in in, in Cape Town they've built a specific um, building and hospital for for wildlife. So they see they have seals in their kestrels and geese and um, mong- uh, mongoose and all sorts of things um, in the in that hospital facility. So it, it does allow private veterinarians to to then contact the SPCA and then they can take over the 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 care of those patients in a in a in a facility that's suited to them uh, and. Then they also have channels for appropriate release and proper release sites. Cool. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I'm, uh, I've talked to, I've now gotten a chance to talk to vets from the U.S., from Mexico, from the U.K., and now here. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure that it's probably like a lot of the stuff that that we kind of deal with. I mean, it's going to be a little different depending on which part of the world you're from. And I'm sure the rules and the regulations have, you know, are, are pretty varied depending on a, but I mean, like how often do some of those rules and regulations change here? I mean, how long have you been practicing? I've been practicing for 15 years. Um, and, uh, but the majority of that, I was in the UK for eight of those years, um, practicing there. So, um, kind of getting the formal education side of things, or like fellowship. No, it, or was, just... it was just purely as for work and travel opportunities. Um, my the 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 qualification here in South Africa from the University of Pretoria is recognised in in the UK. So you don't have to write any exams; you just have to prove that you're a, a, a um a registered member of the, the the South African Council and they recognize the the standard of education so you can then practice in oh yeah so a letter of good standing with the South African Veterinary Council and then you can practice in the UK so we went there um and for for work and travel so we worked a little bit and then used UK as a base to travel around go to the, go to travel Europe a bit travel um South America a bit and that's um and um and then while I was there, I did do a little bit of um, postgraduate studies in in exotic um, exotic animal medicine. So once again, uh, avian work, reptiles, um, a little bit of primate stuff. So just a little bit of extra um, uh, extra certificate just to to get a bit more in depth information into those into that field um, because that is that is a a line of uh, veterinary that I've. Sp- I spent. I've got a lot of interest in, and I've done a, a spent a lot of time with with the exotics and the uh, the exotic companion animals or exotic animal pets, um, and that was an opportunity to do to do a, a qualification uh, in in the UK and get a little bit of that, a little bit more in depth knowledge. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's cool that that's reciprocated in that way. You know, it saves. A, I'm sure. Well, an exponential 
exponential amount of uh, hassle. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's nice being able to have the, um, you know, the diversity and being able to have the options to go different places and do different things. I mean, I wish, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I work in the medical field also, but I mean, you know, more from, uh, like I said, the traditional human standpoint, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a respiratory therapist. Like, okay. um, so I, I don't know if I told you that this morning or not. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had, but, um, but I mean, I wish that my licensure was reciprocated throughout the whole country. And yeah. I wish that, I mean, unfortunately, my profession really is only present in just a, a handful of countries. And um, if you have that option as something that's kind of more widespread, like a, a veterinary, like widespread need, it's pretty cool that you have those options that you can just kind of go in, you know, different places and, and not have to worry about all the extra educational factors and stuff. You know? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It opens a lot of doors and a lot, uh, gives you a lot of opportunities, but it is, it's only specific countries like for us, for us qualifying in South Africa to get to the States, your side, for for example, I think, I haven't looked into it, but I, as far as I understand, lots of the States have their own, you'd have to write an exam for each different state you'd want to practice in. Um, and that's how I understand it. And, and so working in America is out unless I go and sit the full, the full exam, examinations again. Um, yeah. Uh, most of Europe, I can't work in. There's certain countries that recognize it, um, so so it's not like a free pass everywhere. But but uh, there are certain countries that have got agreements, and we've gone over to their universities. They've come over to our universities and said, okay, the standard is acceptable, and the the basics and that your foundation for your for your training is is at a, a good enough standard, and we're allowed to to work there but it it made a huge difference for us and allowed us to go and see and work in a different part of the world that and gave us opportunities that we wouldn't been able to do here at the tip of africa yeah because i mean everywhere else you go you're going to see things that you're not going to get to see here and vice versa i'm sure but uh, but yeah i mean yeah the u.s is kind of weird like that i mean for me to be able to practice in different states i have to literally like apply for and jump through each state's hoops. Like I hold, I hold licenses now in around like 10 or 11 states and like literally their requirements to maintain that licensure is different in every single state, so on and so forth. Their amount of continuing education requirements and all this type of stuff. Like it's different. And and are you working in all those states? Is it, is it beneficial for you to be registered with all them? Well, I mean, it gives me options, kind of like you have options in a way. Like, um, if I was just working a full time job again, then it wouldn't be as important. But since I've or been in like the the contract, you know, travel, you know, side of of um, healthcare for three years now, it's almost like we'd say locum. It, it, it sort of taking yeah. on a, a week mm-hmm. here or a month there. Or... Yeah, it, usually ours are about thirteen week, you okay. know, agreements. You know, so a few months. Mm. But I mean, it is beneficial um, to have options because you never know which state at any given time is going to have needs and this, that, and the other. So if you only have licensure in like one or two states or something, your your options are really limited. Yeah, and you're not going to have as many options as if you had, you know, of course more licenses in different states. Yeah. I mean, out of all the, the licenses that I've had, I've used almost, I've used almost all of them except for maybe three or four, okay. I think. So, I mean, I've worked in like over the last few years, I've worked in like seven different states. Sure. So, you know, like I said, I'm, 
Uh, the only reason I'm bringing this up is, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, like I said, it's it's easy for me to kind of relate a little bit. You know, it's, you know, I I wish I could go into multiple countries. I technically we can. I mean, I know like the Middle East, for example. Um, sometimes they contract out our profession to work over there in certain parts of the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and I know Mexico recently has. Uh, started having respiratory therapists in their hospitals and, and I think Canada too. I can't remember for sure, but at any rate, you know, like I said, it's, it's cool though, that like I said, you have the option and you've gotten this wide breadth of experience now. Um, and all these different, you know, these different countries that you, you know, you, you, you have been able to work. And like I said, I mean, I'm sure coming back, it, it's given you, um, you know, a wider a baseline to work off of, you know, I mean, you, it, there's nothing that's a substitute for experience. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to, while in the UK, do, do a lot of locum work. So similar to what you're doing now, mm -hmm. uh, spending a couple of months in that clinic, um, then going and spending a couple of weeks there. And so I got to work in within the UK, multiple different clinics. Yep, there comes downpour again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're going out in an hour. Um, to multiple different clinics and see how different clinics work and how how they do different things and the 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 clinical work, the veterinary side of it, stays pretty much the same. But the way that they run a clinic and the way they they do things and structure their day changes from each business to each business. And and for me that was that was interesting um, and beneficial. To, so you're not you're not close-minded on how things need to be done and how things need to be run and your day needs to start like this and end like this. So it, it was yeah, it was nice to see how different people worked. And I worked with a lot of a lot of different vets and 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 vet nurses and technicians, um, and it was fantastic to meet people. Yeah. It was it was really good experience. Yeah, I can see definitely how you know if if nothing else, it would let you be able to adapt to, to different situations. And there's nothing that is, it's another one of those things that there's no substitute for, you know, I mean, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, hospitals, you don't, you never know exactly what you're going to walk into yeah, and what kind of day it's going to be because literally every minute of every day has the possibility to drop a, a nuclear bomb on you <laughs> as, yeah. as, as to what you going to walk through the door. Some days there's not much and some days it's just hell on earth for 12 hours or however long, you know, and um, but yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, some of the subspecialties, I mean, does South Africa allow you to have like an avian specialty so, if you want? So we do have specialists and you can get um, specialist qualifications. So but then it's uh, it will be small animal medicine, small, small animal surgery. Um, there's obviously the equine side of it you'll have equine um specialists and uh, but the exotic side of it so the avian except for maybe poultry i'm pretty sure there's a poultry specialist because that's obviously a, a massive big industry in, in south africa um but when it comes to pet birds and the the avian industry in that regard so not your commercial poultry industry but your pet that hasn't been there hasn't been specialists or uh, recognized specialists. So there are lots of vets that are working purely with with um, with exotics, and there are a couple of purely exotic clinics out there. Um, and vets with 
fantastic knowledge and experience um, and they're doing some brilliant work, but the South African Veterinary Council doesn't recognize that them as a, a registered specialist because they haven't had a formalized training. So there's no mm -hmm. training program with an internship and a residency and um, honors degree and, a, and an exam. So, and South Africa is very strict, obviously, as with all the, the, the countries that are wanting um, a, a good level of stand, uh, level of practice, standard of practice, is that you have to, if you want to be called yourself a specialist, you have to go through that residency phase where you're working underneath a specialist. And so it's going to be difficult to get in place here because we don't have somebody that's, if you, if a registered specialist is not recognized, then you don't have anybody to work underneath. And right. so the option would be to go, to go overseas and do a residency. Yeah. And, and get their credential and their specialist recognized in their country. Yes. Not necessarily recognized in yours, but you can at least say on your resume yeah. that you have that specialty in another country. And, and then what the plan would be to work towards like being recognized by the, by the, the, the university and maybe working there. But that's a, that's a path that would take, I think, a long time and a significant <laughs> financial implication. Yeah. Um, so it's not a part that I would, I would follow, but, um, I think there are some vets coming through now that really would like to get that recognition. Yeah. But it'll be a, it'll be a hard slog to get it, um, yeah. to get it proper, properly recognized and registered. And, um, yeah. And there's gotta be a demand for it too. You know, yeah, I mean, but, just, I mean, there's a, a it seems like, you know, there, <laughs> well, I don't know if you've noticed this also in your practice or not, or the time that you have been in, in veterinary, veterinary medicine, but like I've noticed at least in healthcare too, there's gotta be a demand for certain things or else, you know, if there's not like a financial motivation behind it, then it's not going to happen. There comes the thunder. Yeah. Good Lord. Just had some, <laughs> some good lightning just behind your head. There. Yeah. <laughs> no, hundred percent. Unfortunately, money makes the world go round, And if you don't have that, they don't have the clients willing to to spend the money on their on mm. their pets and and um and the problem with lots of the exotics is you your exotic clinics are seeing a lot of rats and a lot of guinea pigs and hamsters and budgies and so and you've got to make sure that that mentality of oh but a budgie costs you 50 rand at the pet shop why would i spend five thousand rand on so, all these tests yeah yeah so so you, you do still have a little bit of that, but that's slowly changing. The the market in South Africa, the the the, the pet industry is, is slowly changing over time. And as I think it is everywhere in the world, people are they they're seeing their their pets as like the members of, the like thing, yeah. members yeah, of them yeah, almost yeah, like kids, yeah. and they mm -hmm. and then the the exotics are slowly coming in with that. People are rabbits are becoming more more popular, and they people are. Um, becoming very attached to their pet rabbits and they're no longer just sitting in a hutch outside they're in the house and they're interacting and and that's slowly changing and with time i do think we'll get to that point like in the states and and in the uk the, the two places that i i know that they are the registered specialists mm -hmm. i think we will get to that point at, at some time but it's it's going to take time and and in south africa in that sort of in that sort of industry we're always a little bit behind the um first world countries like like the states in the uk um because it's we you know we're slowly just building up to that and there has to be like you mentioned there has to be the money there in that market to push it along so yeah 
Yeah, nothing nothing happens quickly in any form of healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, it just takes forever. But well, I mean, as far as I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the the veterinary side of things was your pathway to, to falconry. Uh, go ahead and, and tell us about that a little bit. Well, when I qualified the first year I worked, I worked at the academic hospital in the exotics clinic. So I just did for my first year, first 14 months of work, I just worked with birds, primates, reptiles, um, nothing else. I, it was purely exotics. Um, and one of my classmates uh, gave, gave a, a vet in Dubai my number um, and they offered me a job in Dubai working with falcons in one of the hospitals there. So going over and doing purely falcon work. Um, uh, so as the birds come in, doing health checks before the season, so a pre-season health check and then a post-season um, health check uh, and, and obviously any problems in between. And before I went, my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, uh, gave me a Philip Glacier falconry uh, textbook so that I could just get an idea of what falconry was all about and get an idea because the medicine side was one thing but you I wanted to know but what they're doing um so I had that and I read that before I went out and got a bit of exposure to 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 falconry and that although Philip Glacier and the and the UK style of falconry is very different to what they're doing in in Dubai um but I was there for a couple of months and through through the one hunting season um got to Got to work with really impressive birds and vast numbers of birds uh, of falcons, geofalcons, sakers, um, hybrids. Um, it was a it was a a very eye opening experience. Um, and then when I came back after that that one season there, I looked into falconry and I found the Cape Falconry Club um, and got in contact with them. Started going out and seeing guys fly their birds. But then that was just when I moved over to the UK. So I never really flew a bird, uh, and then, but I kept I kept in contact with the guys in the Cape, and I started going out and meeting people in the UK. So between between coming back from Dubai to picking up my first bird to fly was six years. So that whole time, because we were locoming and moving around the the UK quite quite a lot at the time, and every month in a different city, and couldn't feasibly pick up a bird at that stage um but then i we took a permanent job once i had a permanent job i got myself a little um european sparrowhawk female female european sparrowhawk um and imprinted her and and i flew her for four seasons there and that's that's my my start into it but it, it took a long time from realizing that it was something i was interested in doing and wanting to get involved in to actually picking up a bird it was it was a six year six year wait um before i could actively start because my situation just didn't allow it to do it properly yeah well i mean that's an interesting start too i mean like imprinting a bird for your for your first falconry bird too that's yeah no it was interesting because in the in the uk um you, you there's no there, at that yeah. time there was no wild tech yeah you have to you yeah. still and you still pretty much have to stick to captive bread for yeah the most part. i think i think there was something about yeah but yeah the main thing is it's all captive bread mm-hmm. and i had to look at my situation and what i wanted to fly um and to me flying a, a sparrowhawk a european sparrowhawk was was very appealing it's what i could get quarry for and it's but i did get a lot of pushback from from falconers in the UK um, saying that it's it's a bad decision um, 
when I asked them what, what equipment should I buy, they said, I'll buy a bigger travel box because you're just going to kill your sparrowhawk in the first six months and um, you're <laughs> going to buy yourself a Harrishawk anyway afterwards. And so there was a lot of pushback saying that, that yes, it's a, it's a bad choice, but that wasn't an option to fly a, a parent reared sparrowhawk. That would have been a disaster. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, it was a fantastic bird. I enjoyed it a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, but we, we flew and we hunted for four seasons um, and quite successfully. And it was, a, it was good fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, what, what mistakes do you think you made? Was it more of like mistakes during the imprinting process well, or? I think I made mistakes throughout the whole, the whole thing. Not major things. We still, we still managed to hunt and hunt successfully. Mm -hmm. um, but the imprinting, I'd, um, I made a proper food imprint because uh, chatting to people and I wanted to limit the, the risks of one losing the one mainly not letting a die because not managing her weight correctly and to just make it easier to not lose her um, if she didn't want to if she just went off and did her own thing so at that stage I thought oh, a food imprint would be would make my life easier um, but yeah I did end up with a bird that screamed a lot initially <laughs> yeah but and it, to the point where neighbors were upset with us and but once I, but once she made, I think her second or third kill, she was dead silent for, for the, for the next four years. Mm -hmm. She didn't make a peep. She stayed in the house with us. She didn't scream in the house. She didn't scream when she was ready to go hunting out in the field. She was, was quiet. It was just that, that initial stage when she was maturing. And once she realized she could hunt and she could catch and kill, then she was no longer screaming at me to come and feed her. And, and then she was quiet. Yeah. Um, so that would be one of my big mistakes is that having that screamer <laughs> um, all over the place and screaming at me. Um, uh, and then just little handling errors and getting her too, too focused on me rather than on the quarry outside because she was a young bird, no hunting experience. Um, so she was very often looking at, looking at me and waiting for me to bring out the lure because she was very, very attached to the lure. Um, so she'd, she'd know if she wasn't really keen, she'd fly off, chase something, go sit in a tree and just wait for me to bring out the lure. And yeah. Mistakes like that, yeah. which I would, and I would do subtle things differently if I had to imprint another small insipiter again now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what were you primarily hunting at that time then? So we were hunting a, a wide range of quarry um, and the, uh, the reason why I liked her is because I could go to small farms and 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 hunt small birds. Uh, so everything from a from a, a wren um, wren sized bird up to a I think she caught a cock pheasant. Um, um, we we caught a couple of small rabbits, um, but made, mainly it was small birds. Um, but she would I would actively pursue magpies. She she had a thing about a magpie. She desperately wanted to get hold of them um so i'd, I'd actively pursue them and in the the I, I tried to set up the classical um sparrow on blackbird because that in sparrow sparrow um fell or hawking in in the uk uh, i got the impression while i was there that the 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 ideal match would be a a blackbird or a, a sparrowhawk hunting a blackbird, a female sparrowhawk on, on blackbird and trying to get 
set up those those flights um, and it, it was challenging to get to set them up just right um, because to get them to flush into the open space with the sparrow behind them was a challenge but we did we did take a few blackbirds um, while while we were there but I, I really had to work hard to <laughs> to set those to set those um, those slips up yeah because certain I mean yeah even with the element of surprise and as fast as some of those small exhibitor type you know short wing type birds are and stuff it you really do need that extra little leg up for them to be able to make ground sometimes yeah, and, and yeah. there you and there I was hunting a lot on hedgerows with the with the blackbirds you generally you're walking down hedgerow and you, you've got to try and flush them out into an open space and get them out of the hedge because they know full well they can move through the hedge way faster than the than the sparrow can so um you got to you got to try and work at that it flushes out of that that hedge uh, feels threatened enough to get out of the hedge even though there's a sparrow hawk about and you can try and be as sneaky as you want those blackbirds know you're coming and then mm -hmm. they can see the sparrow hawk on that glove a mile away um so sure. so i i spent a lot of time trying to get that right and i made a few kills uh, of black uh, blackbird kills but but it was definitely not the the, the majority yeah and you know it's it's funny how all of a sudden you know a bird um, a bird of prey enters, you know, the field, and literally every prey item knows instantly that it's there. It's it's yeah. kind of funny how that works. So. No, you, you walk <laughs> you walk a field with your dogs, and you can see, and you just think, oh, this I must come here. This is going to be perfect setup. Look at that bird. Look at this. Get there with a hawk on your on your glove, and it looks deserted, and it look there's not a a movement in sight because they all see you coming, and they disappear. Yeah. So. Whenever you were kind of finishing up your, your tenure in the UK then and kind of your, you know, traveling abroad and stuff, and you knew you wanted to come back to, you know, s South Africa and especially this area, I mean, what was kind of the, the thought on your mind is what you wanted to do next with, with your falconry at that point? Well, one of the motivations to come back to South Africa was the, the possibility of a wild take. Mm -hmm. um, because we we do have that it's strictly controlled but there there is that option of of wild take and um, and a variety of species that we can that we can fly here so african goshawk lana falcon peregrine falcon black sparrow hawk red-breasted sparrow hawk, or rufous breasted sparrow hawk. um jackal buzzard we allowed to fly but it's not the best falconry bird is not um kestrels we allowed to fly so the, you've you've got that option of of a wild take which um, which was very appealing to me to the idea of being able to get a bird, take a bird from the wild, fly it, try and work with it, try and get it doing really, really well. And then once I've had that experience and their inter interaction with that species, being able to release it back into the wild um, and then get a bit of experience with, a, with, with, uh, with another species. Um, whereas... Whereas if you're buying a bird in, um, I feel like then you've got to you've got to you've got to stick to it. And and in the UK, it was the 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 bird changing hands from one person to the next, and I didn't I didn't like it because there was guys buying in a European goshawk, flying it for a season or two, not being happy, wanting something more exciting, selling it off, buying a buying another one. It, it just didn't seem right to me. So, so the option, the the ability for me to get um, experience with multiple species, 
and being able to release them again was very very appealing and um that and and i've tried to what since i've been back i've tried to get a bit of experience with multiple different species to find out what what i do actually want to do long term what is going to be my style of falconry and i'm i'm definitely leaning towards short wings <laughs> short wings on on guinea fowl running flying over my dogs uh, i'm pretty keen for that to be my to be something that i work towards but it will take some time before i get there and have a have a team that's that's working 100 percent. well and even when we think we're there half the time we're still kind of not yeah. it's one of those endless pursuit kind of things exactly. but but um well i mean so since you've been back then what has been kind of your your path like what have you flown and what kind of prey have you pursued since being able to kind of join the club here and and kind of be more involved in in this area's falconry yeah so since since i've been back i've had the opportunity to fly um uh african goshawk which was which was fantastic of a, a, a superb little bird that was settled down into that so a passage a passage female um that was hunting successfully um that that we trapped or i trapped and she settled into the house environment very nicely and she was it took her some time to get her hunting but she was very efficient and she she was she really did well um and it was it was towards the end of the season it was fantastic small birds um lots of walking through the fields multiple slips um very exciting uh so that was that was the a bit of the short wing exposure then i've had a opportunity to fly lana and she flew beautifully and she she got nice pitch in thermals and did really nicely but i never really never really succeeded in getting her hunting successfully um i was i was wanting to hunt small birds with her waiting on but i never really got her to to switch on um and and actively pursue or or, or pursue anything with with intent um and i mean i don't know i've i made a, obviously made a couple of mistakes there but the one time i let her go off she went up into a thermal out of sight i knew exactly how much i had how much she weighed before she flew off and I, and, and then when i did call her back when i did get her back i gave her a, a a small meal and i knew exactly how much she had she had eaten but when i weighed her she weighed more than more than her weight and that little that little bit of food that i'd get got her and the whole time she was out of sight i could i had the telemetry and she was above me so she had on the wing caught something caught something you, you and she was, she was she was she was so self-sufficient she was just waiting for me to present her with an easy meal um and she had me trained um <laughs> so so i flew the flew the lana um and then and then I got opportunity and it's the bird I've got with me now is a, a little rescue a Rufus breasted sparrow so a, a bird that flew into a window member of the public picked it up and contacted a, a rehab center um and then I picked it up and trained it and, and I flew it last last year for for three months and we had a lot of fun um she was really uh really um enthusiastic and lively and i was actively pursuing quail at that stage um and towards the end of the season we did manage to to take take two or three quail i did manage to take two or three quail but i had to end up throwing her like the turkish falcons do when they put the <laughs> the darting this yeah. Yeah, yeah put the sparrow in your in your right hand and when something flushes a good 
could slip, then you then you dance. Otherwise, she was just going for everything that moved in a fifty meter radius. And if she missed, then she'd she'd keep self hunting. Um, and she was very efficient at that. But it would always be always be far far away from me. Yeah. So I ended up just um, throwing her like a dart, um, and she she took to that very very quickly. I I don't think there was any there was never any difficulty to get her to do it she was she was she accepted it from the first time i tried it and um and it worked really really well yeah i mean i can see where it would be easier to get like an imprint to be more accept you know acceptable to something like that but like you know with a, with a passage bird or something i i it's interesting you know a, a species like that in particular i know harris's sometimes are really kind of receptive to it to a certain degree too but it's always interesting seeing some of these birds except being kind of like casted you know and, yeah. and, and tossed i mean I, i'll <laughs> be like... honest i tried it with my european sparrow oak, the imprint mm -hmm. um but she, and she wasn't scared of me at all mm -hmm. um but she would not tolerate that yeah she but i think that was because she wasn't scared of me at all she she knew that she could throw a tantrum and i would back off whereas the passage bird i think there's a little component of she's not quite sure what's going on so her instinct is to, to freeze all, up yeah. a little bit um, but then, then I can feel her when I'm when I'm walking. I can feel her in my in the hand, and you can feel she's relaxed. And if something flashes in front of her, her whole body tenses up. So, and she's and she's watching the quarry. She's not looking at me. Um, she's I'm holding her, and she's watching what's happening around because she's also just as just as amped to catch something. Um, so, so I think initially she allowed me to pick her up because she wasn't too. She was a bit nervous, and but um, she froze. But then very quickly she realized what it meant and accepted it quite well. Cool. Well, and out of curiosity too, what uh, I mean, what kind of species, what species of quail do you have around here primarily? I think it's Cotonix, Cotonix. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's. But they're they they're quite small, um, and they're they they like you get the Cotonix quails that have been bred for for production and mm -hmm. um, domestic use, and they like, probably about three or four times bigger than the, the quail we've got running around. Um, uh, I'd have to double check exactly what the subspecies, but it is, it is a Cotonix um, species, yeah. Hmm. Nifty, yeah, I wasn't sure if you guys had some of the similar species that are found, you know, around, you know, say parts of like, you know, north america or if, if it was you know a very different species or like i said i mean it's been one of the more interesting things as i've mentioned before is kind of getting to know a little bit the different species of prey that you have here because yeah. it's completely you know different so i was wondering just how different like the quail was and stuff yeah i think it too. is a different species to the north american quails i think you've got yeah. a couple of different oh we've got a lot of different species yeah. of, of of quail you know but uh but yeah i mean yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wasn't really sure exactly which countries the the Coturnix were were kind of prevalent in either. Yeah. You know, so nifty. Well, like I said, that's that's cool. So, I mean, now that you, I mean, you you kind of mentioned, um, you know, wanting to kind of go back to you know the short wings and, yep. and stuff. So, what's your? Well, I mean, what's your next ideal ideal plan? Um. Well, it, yeah, the ideal. At the moment, my current thinking, and this will probably change five times in the next year, um, <laughs> but I would like to fly a, a, a imprint black spar, female black spar at guinea fowl, and then have the dogs keeping the guinea fowl in the air. Um, but we're not allowed to take we're not allowed to take um, 
there's no kind there's of, no eyes take no okay. eyes take mm-hmm. at the moment so an imprint is looking unlikely um so for now i'll just carry on trying different species and different things i've currently i've currently got a, a captive bred peregrine that i'm trying to get her to fl- to fly and hunt um pied crow so it's a fairly big corvid species um and i'm just trying to get it to to get confident enough to to take them on and and hunt them um, but it is proving to be a a bit of a challenge well i mean good luck to you on that i mean hopefully that you got you know with the different hopefully with the different I don't passage of time options that you guys will have as you guys continue to work with, you know, the, the governments here and everything. Yeah. And hopefully you'll, you'll manage to get, you know, IS take at some point and maybe make that a reality. Yeah. But, they, they're quite adamant at the moment, um, but it will take a little bit of motivation. And um, I think if we can justify it and we can prove that it's not, we're not um, permanently taking them out of the, out of the, out of nature, because their big thing is we 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 need to be borrowing out of nature, not not taking for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so their thing is, if you're imprinting, that's a bird that's never going to be able to be released again. Mm-hmm. So you're no longer borrowing. Um, yeah. So we'll just have to try and push the social imprint side of it um, to say that if they if they're properly socially imprinted, they could then be released back and become a productive member of the breeding population. Um, but that'll take take some time and work. Yeah. Well, I think now would be a good time to transition to one of our, you know, favorite topics of discussion, which is, you know, some of those memorable, you know, flights, stories, uh, you know, birds that you've had. I mean, usually there's at least one, but I mean, is there any kind of particular memory that you have of in the field of a particular flight or anything? Uh, I mean, the, the my first bird is always going to be the, the bird that I have the biggest connection with and that was um the the uh, the european sparrowhawk uh, i called her spatchcock and um she <laughs> she really was an enthusiastic bird and um yeah and there's there's lots of the like your the first my first kill as a as a falconer with her was was um was quite memorable it wasn't a spectacular flight but it was it was her across the whole length of a field um I think it was I think it was a wheat field that they'd st- stubble wheat field that she'd she just burst off the glove. I wasn't even, I wasn't even hundred percent sure what she was going for. It m- must have been a good thirty forty meters across the field, and as as I saw him getting closer, a, a rook got up off the ground. So also four times her size, and as it got off the ground, she hit it. She hit it hard, and she she hung onto it like you like you won't believe. Um, and that was her that was her first her first kill um off the glove and it was like i said not a spectacular fight spli- uh, flight but for your first kill as a falconer with a bird that you've imprinted um ah it was it'll stick with me forever and my dad was actually visiting me from so he had come over from south africa and was visiting in the uk at the time and he was with me um and he was able to be there and take videos and take photos and be part of that it was it was quite an exciting quite an exciting time awesome well i mean real quick too and i before we end i want to go back a little bit to the vet side of things and something that i meant to touch on earlier but but forgot to ask was 
I mean, as as you know, the whole avian influenza side of things has just been so impactful on falconers across the world. How has that been here in South Africa compared to other parts of the world? Have you really seen much? I mean, is it a situation where they're not really monitoring it as much or kind of how's that been here to your knowledge? Anyway? No, they are monitoring it and they, 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 the state vet is keeping records. But I think we've, we, uh, I'll be speaking out of turn. I don't, I'm not quite sure on the status, but um, avian influenza has been an issue here um, for a while and has affected uh, poultry farming and that, and that's where the main side is, is is the poultry poultry industry, and they're very strict about exposure to um, to wild birds and keeping wild birds off the, the off the grounds. Um, obviously, for for falconers, it's a it's a major worry because uh, lots of the guys during the hunting season are are hunting waterfowl, um, and there is that risk that they do get exposed exposed to it. Um, but it's, uh, it's. I think it's here, and it's it's not gonna go away anytime soon. Uh, so we've, we have to just be cautious with what we do and how we do things, and um, and and understand the risks involved with what you what you're flying and and where you're flying, and and obviously make sure you don't put anyone's um, flocks of poultry on, in at risk. Don't go and fly next to a chicken farm and potentially. Get your bird in there, um, in the grounds, because they're going to not take that very, very lightly. Mm -hmm. Not just because of the avian influenza. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, they're not going to want any of their chickens to get eaten either, of course. But, um, well, like I said, I was just curious because it seems like ducks, like you mentioned, are just such a, a huge part of falconry prey base here. In the Western and, Cape, definitely. It's a it's yeah. a big part. The guys that are flying long wings, they... Um, ducks are, are quite a, a, a predominant um, quarry species, uh, so it is it is a it is a concern. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, we we haven't had too many incidences of of it. But but it is around, and you have to be cautious. And and um, and on the, the veterinary side and the monitoring side, the state vets are keeping track of it and recording uh, confirmed cases and. Um, so that they know the status and and know where hotspots are, and um, and so it is. It has been monitored. All right. Well, and I mean, I'm. I think that we could probably come close to wrapping up here. And you know, I, I want to go ahead and and ask you the same thing that I've been asking falconers for a while now that I've been doing these podcasts with, and that. I mean, in, in your point of view, what's some of the better piece of advice or one of the better sentiments that you think you can leave, you know, current, even, you know, prospective falconers? I mean, you said you've been doing this for a little while now. Yeah. So. I mean, I do it. I do this purely for, for the enjoyment and the pleasure of it. Um, I'm not trying to compete with anyone and uh, it's not, no one's going to, well, lots of people will judge you, but no one, it doesn't matter um, if you, if you, if you're flying a certain style of falconry and you're enjoying it and you're having a good time and your birds are fit and healthy and you're not doing any harm to to your to your birds and your dogs and you're not you're not uh, doing negatively impacting the, the the people around you the the farms that you're on the the quarry that you're hunting um just enjoy it don't 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 try and don't try and emulate or worry about what what you you think they should 
you should be doing or or how you should be doing it just as long as you're enjoying it and having a good time um because if you if you stressing out and you're worrying about what everyone else is thinking about how how your birds performing and what you're doing you're not going to get any joy out of it and um and there's then there's no point in spending all this time all this money all this effort on a very specialized hobby uh you know there's there's just if you're not enjoying it there's what's the point of doing it exactly well and and i think that we get so wrapped up in our well i mean for lack of better terms we get so wrapped up in our own bs with this stuff sometimes and we get in our own heads and um it's easy to forget that we're not like curing cancer when we're doing this stuff right yeah. You know, well, <laughs> and everyone seems to take it so seriously, and uh, uh, and uh, I think it's I don't know. Everyone seems to take it so seriously, but it's it's a hobby. You must enjoy it. Don't yeah, and yeah, I don't know. It just it needs to be fun, and mm. you can't be you can't be stressing out because this person doesn't like the way you're doing this. So long as you're not doing any harm to your to your hawk or to the to the environment and to the people around you then as long as you're enjoying it it's it's all right and but i do feel if you've got a hawk it needs to hunt um can't be it can't be a display piece that's that's also important for sure well hopefully at some point we'll get to see some actual hawking sometimes yeah. this hopefully weekend. this is just the first day and it gets better from here yeah let's, let's hope well, people keep, uh, yeah, knock on wood. Yeah. You know, um, you know, people keep saying tomorrow might be a little bit better weather wise and stuff, but yeah. you know. tomorrow's meant to be a nice, nice open day. Yeah. So yeah, but let's, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the, uh, the falconry gods don't always shine down upon us. That's for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately. And the Western Cape weather likes to change it at yeah. the drop of a hat. Tell you what, man, like, you know, I thought Midwest, you know, U.S. weather was was bipolar and kind of, you know, all schizophrenic all over the place a little bit. You know, I mean, this is um, you guys are are starting to give my uh, mentality on that a run, a run for its money. Yeah, no, we like to keep it interesting. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, thanks for the conversation and, uh, you know, for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll um, hopefully have some have some fun as the week continues and and get to see some good flights. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure meeting you. All right, appreciate it, Kyle. Cheers.